Hey, this is Keith. Or some actor playing Keith, I'm not really sure anymore. But um, we're coming to the end. The end of my Los Angeles con spree. But before I leave, I have some scores to set and discover a couple truths to be revealed. It's all going to come down to the season finale of Rideshare Episode X. It's going to drop on December 3rd. Now, until then, I want you to catch up by binge listening the first season. And I suggest that you do exactly as I say. Or you're going to miss all the fun. Hey, it's Brent Pope, the host of Breakfast with Brent Pope. You've seen me on some of your favorite TV shows saying things like, give it up, Jimmy. You got to sink this putt to win. On Breakfast with Brent Pope, I sit down with guests from the entertainment world and we do it all over breakfast. Or should I say breakfast? Every week on Breakfast, you get inside Hollywood info and tips, great breakfast wrecks and booty debates. Most of all, you get the most delightful 30 minutes of your week. So dig in. It's breakfast time. Listen at breakfast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Hey guys, this is Ray again, and I want to say thank you so much for listening already, uh, unless you're not listening, in which case you can't hear me. So wiener dog to you uh in any case this is lights camera cobra it's a two-part episode we're here live in studio with buzz dixon uh which means we're gonna get about halfway through the show and then we're gonna kind of quick cut we're gonna say good night and you're gonna be like they didn't finish the show that's because we're gonna finish the show next friday for lights camera cobra part two so that's what's up it it might be weird uh, hold my hand we'll get through it together okay Here's the show. Hold my hand. I'll a harder hand. Hold my hand. Go on a harder hand. You guys are making this really weird. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the show, guys. He never gives up. He'll stay till the fight. One G.I. Joe will dare. G.I. Joe. and welcome back to your favorite G.I. Joe podcast, Knowing is Half the Podcast, episode 19, the show that has got it going on. Here's the thing. Uh, normally, I would say that's presumptuous. Uh, maybe someone has a more favorite G.I. Joe podcast, and you just tell them that this is their favorite podcast. Kind of a dick move. That being said, but... That being said, we have the single best guest in G.I. Joe history, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, now it is your favorite G.I. Joe podcast. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there. Suck it, jerks. <laughs> Suck it, every other Suck G.I. Joe other podcast. G.I. Joe podcast. <laughs> in any case, I am Ray Stacanus. I'm Robert Chan. I'm Gina Ippolito. And we are joined by guest Buzz Dixon to talk about an episode that he wrote. You wrote it, sir. Lights, <laughs> camera, cobra. Say hello to the people out there. Hello to the people out there. <laughs> oh, he's like a puppet. I can yes. make him do whatever. <laughs> Good night, Gracie. Yes. Uh, this is a pretty wild episode. This episode is like, um, it's really about Hollywood. Yep. It's about a feeling about Hollywood. It is, it's, there's something there. There's something that touches the pulse as much as you can in 1985. Really dig into what's going on in Hollywood. Uh-huh. Uh how long have you been? How long have you been writing? Like, and I guess like. Well, I actually uh, wrote my first book before I knew how to read. <laughs> <laughs> when I was when I was a little boy, I was like most little boys uh, and little girls, uh, you know, enamored with dinosaurs. And my my oh, grandmother yeah. and aunt would bring me these books. The there was um, you know. Sinclair Oil Company would always have these uh, stamp collections of dinosaurs and whatnot. So I had all these books with dinosaurs in them, pictures and the names under them. And even before I knew how to read, I would draw pictures of dinosaurs and then I would write their names very carefully, copy the name underneath. 
And I stapled it all together. I put like about 40 of them together and stapled it, and that was my first book. That was your first storyboard, really. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I did that when I was about like five years old. Um, um, and I've been telling stories ever since. Um, when I was growing up, my, uh, my father's job, he was... Well, let me explain it. My, my father worked in women's clothing. Uh, that needs a little more clarification. <laughs> like in, in the clothing itself? Yeah, he was, he was a time I mean, studies, haven't we all at some yes. point? He was a time studies engineer for uh, garment manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a time studies engineer is kind of like an efficiency expert. He comes in, he figures out what is the best and fastest way of making a particular style of garment, how much to charge for the labor over that period of time, yeah. so you can guess how much it's going to cost labor wise to make so many thousand garments mm-hmm. um, and like most efficiency experts at a certain point you've you've got the factory working so well they look at you and say well you know the only person we really don't need now is yep. you <laughs> and so my father was like going every year it seemed from one job to another and we traveled throughout North Carolina we lived we lived in 20 different homes before I graduated high school holy oh. crap Wow. And I mean, I you have to be a military brat to have traveled more than and moved more than we did. Yeah. And early on, I you know, thanks dinosaurs led me to um, I think it was Rick Hunter Time Master or something like that. But that was like a a DC comic. Oh, about Rip Hunter, Hunter. yeah, Rip Hunter. Yeah, he's going to be on the New Legends of Tomorrow show. Yeah, well, it was it was like a time traveler who occasionally encountered dinosaurs. So mm-hmm. You know, I'm five years old. I've got to have this. This That's the first comic book I remember buying on my own dime. Having a dime that I could buy. That shows you how old I am. <laughs> uh, having a dime and I go, wow, dinosaur. Yeah, that's mine. And so I was enamored with dinosaurs. I liked dinosaur movies. That led me into science fiction and whatnot. I became interested in science fiction. I got involved from famous monsters and film fandom and science fiction fandom, I found out that my um, I could have friends who were no further away than my mailbox. So that no matter where I moved, my friends would be there waiting for me. They'd be sending out fanzines. They'd be having letters nice. in, in magazines and whatnot. And so I got heavily involved in fandom when I was like 12, 13 years old. And I got really involved in it through uh, up until the point I was drafted. And... Being like many science fiction fans, you want to tell your own stories. You want to come up with your own ideas and whatnot. And I was, at a very early age, 12 or 13, I was writing my own little science fiction stories and epics and whatnot. And I, I had chutzpah like nobody's business. I was At age 13, I'm mailing off this crappy sci-fi story to Esquire magazine, you know, thinking, well, they'll love it, you know. And it's like, you know, you get your standard rejection. I mean, the... the the first thing I ever had published was, um, I think the, it was called you, you Won't Catch Me in One of Those, and it was in uh, Gore Creatures, which was like one of the premier film fanzines of the 1960s. And it was basically an analysis of why sci-fi movies had such crappy um, you know, spaceship sets. You know, because nobody really knew what a spaceship was supposed to look like in the mm-hmm. 50s. And mm-hmm. I'll put some dials up and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I got interested in storytelling. I would I would see movies and I would 
in TV shows and I would tell them to my friends and I found myself invariably making them better because I would I would either, you know, leave stuff out that wasn't important or I would bring stuff, you know, well, they, they should have had more dinosaurs fighting. So I would increase the dinosaur fighting, you know, and, and sometimes it would backfire because I would sell a movie too well and they'd go see it. There wasn't in there, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah, well, I was kind of wondering, it was like, uh, uh, like, at what point did you get to Hollywood uh, is was there that still uh, that vision of Hollywood? And well, it, it the the circumstances that lead up to this also, as, as everything in your life, there's so many threads that intertwine and they lead to something. So it's not like a single thread. Um, my father got a job in Tennessee. We lived in Tennessee for six years, which is like the longest we ever lived any place. But we still moved once a year just for practice. <laughs> uh, and I'm not kidding. We, were, we lived in like four different houses in this small town in Tennessee. Um, in Tennessee, you have to have, at the time, you had to have 20 credits to graduate high school. And one year I wanted to take an elective you know, in my junior year, I wanted to take an elective. So that summer, I went to summer school to get one of the mandatory math classes out of the way. So I take I take the mandatory class, and then I take the elective that I want in the fall. So by the time I'm starting my senior year, I've got 16 credits. Well, my father transfers to North Carolina. And I get to North Carolina, and the high school there says, well, you've got enough credits to graduate by North Carolina law. You've got 16 credits. We only require 16. And I said, well, great. Give me a diploma and I'll go home. And I said, no, no, no. You've, you've actually got to show up for your senior year to get the diploma. So, okay, fine. So I'm taking like every easy course you can imagine. Psychology, um, uh, government. When I The only F I got was in, in comparative government and I had to fight so hard for that F. I mean, it was like a constant battle with that poor teacher. I mean, I, I feel sorry for her. So I'm, I'm taking like all the easy courses and things like this. I'm just relaxing and enjoying my, my last year in high school. And the, the Vietnam War is still going on and I get, you know, a draft notice. Ugh. And I'm going, this is great. Because what I'm going to do is I'll call up the draft board and say, hey, I'm still in high school. You can't draft me. And they'll go, oops, our mistake. And they'll forget all about it. So I do that. I call them up. I, you know, I got my draft notice, but, you know, I'm in high school and I can't, you can't draft me. Okay. All right. And so I thought that's the end of it. A couple of weeks later, I get a phone call and they said, well, we, we checked with your school and you're right. We cannot draft you now but the moment you graduate we can draft you and so we're going to draft you as soon as you graduate school (laughs) and i said but whoa 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 i said wait what if what if i fail all my courses and i have to repeat the year and he said no no, we already checked you've got enough credits we've got you (laughs) (laughs) so like like three days after i graduate i'm at i'm at fort dix new jersey which um Nah. <laughs> oh, it's not, one of the I, I tell people the worst single meal I ever had in my life was at Fort Dix. I was standing knee deep in a swamp on the tail end of a hurricane, Ooh. and we were eating sea rations. And I had the spaghetti sea oh, ration, oh, no. which was like spaghetti Jello in, in that temperature. <laughs> it was just like the most awful thing I had ever eaten. And you know, I I spent two years in Korea, so. Please, when I say it's the most awful thing I ever ate, it's the most awful thing I ever ate. When did you get to Hollywood? Well, I this was 1972 when I was drafted. Um, I'm in Korea. I meet my wife in Korea. I get married. We get married. I re-enlist uh, for the bonus 
So I spend a total of six years in the military. By 78, the the Army and I are both going, you know, we should be seeing other people. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I'm, I get out of the Army in late February, early March. I recall it as being like late February, but uh, whatever. I may be wrong on the exact date. So I had applied to USC's film school. Now, now, mind you, at this time, I'm married, and I have a, a three-year-old daughter. My wife and I have a three-year-old daughter. And uh, I apply to USC's film school. I'm accepted at the film school, so I'm going great. But the film school doesn't start until October, and I'm getting discharged from the military in March. And, in fact, I actually took what was called terminal leave. I saved up my leave time so I could leave a month early, mm-hmm. you know, just get out of there. So... <clears throat> We pack up the car, and I have lots of experience packing. <laughs> pack up the car, and we head out to to California. And we knew new, we knew nobody. We we knew a couple. One of my wife's college friends was married to a Marine who was stationed at uh, the Irvine Air Station at that time. And so we we stayed with them. But I was trying to find. I, I thought I should get some kind of job in the, the film business as a driver, in the mail room or something, just to get my feet wet in film production before going to film school so I have at least some idea of what the town is like. And so I start at the top, Universal Studios, and I literally work my way down. I go to every single studio, every single production house. I am not exaggerating when I say I must have visited or, or at least sent applications into about 100 different places. Jeez. I didn't meet Samuel Z. Arkoff, but I heard him screaming obscenities in the next room. <laughs> um, and, and I worked my way all the way down to Filmation Studios. And, um, you know, I was aware of Hanna-Barbera, and I was aware of Filmation, and Filmation was the not-very-good animation studio. Mm-hmm. So I'm down at that level. And it, but the one thing about them was they had a live-action division. And so I figured, well, I don't know anything about cartoons but you know the live action people certainly they've got to you know have drivers and stuff like that maybe i can get a job there so i go there with my resume and i go into the front desk and this this is like march of uh 1978 and i hand my resume in and i say i'm i'm trying to find work as you know a driver or somebody in, in the live act well they said in live action or animation and i say well live action and they said, well, you know, Arthur's in, and he's not doing anything. And this is Arthur Nadell, who was their live-action producer. And he says, he's not doing anything because we're in hiatus right now. Let me take this back, and, you know, maybe he wants, he'll, he'll want to see you. Well, Arthur was bored. He had nothing to do. <laughs> There's a guy looking for a job. Yeah, fine, send him in. <laughs> and so I come in, and we start talking, and we hit it off, and I explain, you know, my background. I had been a, a newspaper editor and a journalist when I was in the Army. Uh, I had written a number of short stories, had never sold anything, but I had a number of short stories in my trunk, so to speak. Uh, I was a science fiction fan, so I knew I knew the lingo and whatnot. And he said, well, we've got this animated series that we're having a terrible problem with it it um it was called um starlight and sunbright or erudite and uptight or uh instabright and jebusite something like that but i I can't remember what it was but basically the premise was there were two fraternal twins and i think one of 
my few contributions early on was explaining to somebody the difference between identical and eternal. <laughs> you cannot have one a blonde and one a brunette and be identical. <laughs> so there are two fraternal twins, one who has superpowers in the daytime and one who has superpowers at night. Mm-hmm. And we could never get that show to work. I mean, it was canceled before we had even done one episode of it and uh, boy that's such a surprise yeah <laughs> with such a strong well hook. i actually i actually got i i came very close to introducing sex to saturday morning television <laughs> okay because one of the ideas that i wanted to do i said i want to do a, a story where they're chasing uh, a unicorn and one of the girls can't get anywhere near the unicorn but the other one catches it quite easily <laughs> yeah i would have enjoyed that <laughs> And um, so, where you know, did you, I was to say, where did you find like your your, your like your feeling towards Hollywood? Because well, obviously, impressions come across all throughout this episode. I, I, you know, as I said, I the the monster the the dinosaurs led me to dinosaur movies, led me to sci-fi and monster movies, led me to Famous Monsters magazine. Um, I visited Forey Ackerman the first time I came out to Los Angeles. My aunt was, you know, real. My aunt was taking me and my brothers on a trip to Los Angeles, and she's real leery about this crazy, creepy guy that I've been in contact with. But <laughs> she finds out, oh, he's crazy all right, but he's, you know, he's an okay sort. I mean, Forey had this incredible house, the Acker Mansion, that was filled with just every kind of imaginable sci-fi book, uh, movie prop, you name it. But anyway, um, I came out, and I, my first experience in Los Angeles, as I, I, we got off of the airplane, and, and I, it was at Terminal 4 in, at LAX, and I remember just walking into the terminal and looking around at the passengers waiting for their flight, and I just felt, I'm home. Yep. <laughs> you know, this is it. This is where I'm supposed to be. And so <laughs> from that moment on, I knew I was going to come back. Even when I was in high school, I was telling my guidance counselor, I want to work in film and things. Oh, you want to be a movie projectionist? No, I, I want to make them. And when, you know, my wife says I, I misled her because she said, well, when we first met, you said you wanted to work in television and you indicated like a broadcast engineer. And it was like, well, yeah, if I couldn't find any work anywhere else, I'd try to get something like that. But I mean, the goal was to come out to Hollywood. So I was I was already steeped in the lore of Hollywood. I, you know, I had been buying these books there used to be a thing called the Nostalgia Book Club where you would you know, buy these books about old-time Hollywood. And I, I must have had like 40 or 50 <laughs> books about the silent era and the you know, you know, early serials and things like this. And I, I was reading. I was just absorbing all this stuff in. I end up never going to college because you know, I'm talking with Arthur. And um, Arthur, you know, I mentioned that I'm a writer. And Arthur says, well, have you written anything? And I mentioned I hadn't sold anything, but I had some short stories. And he says, well, I would love to see them. And so I, I wrangle an invitation to come back and meet Arthur again. I come and I give him the stories. And that was when he was telling me about the problems they're having with Starlight and Sunbright. And he <laughs> says, why don't you try coming up with some ideas? And, and he had to be very cagey because he can't, say, develop some ideas and bring them to me because then he's committed to buying them. But right. if he says if you happen to come up with some ideas, and if they happen to find their way to my desk, I'd be willing to look at them. If they happen to be about someone who has powers in the sunlight. Exactly, yeah. 
So I left my short stories with him. I went back to the place where we were staying, and I'm up all night with my little Olivetti, you know, typing these <laughs> things up. And Lou Scheimer, who was one of the – Lou Scheimer and Norm Prescott were the two big producers of um, at, at Filmation. Uh, Arthur was their – technically their employee, but he was in charge of the live-action division. Lou was in on vacation in Hawaii, and Arthur FedExed the um, – uh, stories i had written to him and this you got to imagine in 1978 fedexing is a big deal Mm -hmm. you know see fedex the stories to to lou who reads them in hawaii and when lou comes back sitting on his desk are the story ideas that i came up with and had given to arthur that arthur had liked and put on lou's desk and what i had not known when i went in to see arthur the very first time was that before leaving for hawaii lou had told him we've got to find another staff writer and find one fast (laughs) and so lou comes back and he reads the stories that are on his desk and he says arthur i don't know who we should hire i don't know if we should hire the guy that wrote the stories i wrote the short stories i read in in hawaii or the guy that wrote these stories and arthur said they're the same guy and he said get him (laughs) so i i was uh, i was hired originally on a freelance basis but by like script three or four i'm i'm on staff i worked with two uh, besides arthur i worked with two really great story editors uh chuck menville and len jansen um Len once tried to kill me by smashing my head with a coat rack, but I, I have to say, in Len's defense, entirely deserved. Um, and I, there was a, a writer named Gary Boudreau who was working there. Gary had been one of the writers for the Warren magazines, Creepy, Eerie, 1984, and stuff like that. And when he blew the whistle on Jim Warren trying to rip off Harlan Ellison, Harlan helped him get a job in Hollywood. And that's how I met Harlan Ellison. And that's how I began meeting all of these people. Um, There was a writer there named Bill Danch who went all the way back to the radio days. Bill wrote um, the second movie that Roger Corman made. Everybody forgets wow. Roger Corman's first movie, which was a crime thriller, but they remember his second one, The Monster from the Ocean Floor, <laughs> which, which Danch wrote for him. You know, Danch was quite a... I mean, there was a whole bunch of characters, and um, Sam Simon, who went on to be oh, one of the wow. co-creators the of um, The Simpsons, mm-hmm. was working there at the same time. Oh, man. That's and cool. um, Sam was a, at that time, was a prickly person. I, I understand <laughs> that in his later years, he mellowed out quite a bit, and I'm, I'm happy for him that, that he mellowed out, you know, before passing away. But he was a prickly sort. And, um, you know, we worked on a couple of projects together. We co-wrote a um, Mighty Mouse science fiction serial. <laughs> and we, we had a lot of head knocking in it. And Bill Danch explained it to me. He said, the problem is you guys would work excellently together if you had completely opposite senses of humor mm-hmm. or perfectly parallel senses of humor. The problem is you are you overlap enough with each other but not synced perfectly so so you're like rubbing against each other the wrong way <laughs> and uh you know it was i mean sam he was a character and and you know 
God bless him, he's gone now, but he left all his money to animals. So, mm-hmm. you know. Everybody wins. Everybody well, wins, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know. We'll, we'll jump in knee-deep into the episode right okay. here. Uh, we open with the opening scene, which feels off to begin with, speaking of things like rubbing incoherently, mm-hmm. because we've got uh, Cobra Commander speaking with a voice we don't fully <laughs> comprehend or understand, and he's got a, a visible see-through thing in the top of his mask. Uh, and we're all of a sudden thrown into a world of what the F is happening right now. I actually, a while back, um, w- was looking for uh, episodes online, and I came across this episode. I was like, whoa, uh, is this like a like a weird Spanish version of G.I. Joe that got yeah. retranslated back into English? Like, And then eventually I was like, oh, oh, thank God. It's Hollywood thing. Cool, cool, cool. I'm... Yeah. I'm not insane. It, it felt like after Jim Henson died, other people doing the voice of Kermit the Frog, and it's all just not right. And it's just, it's like petting a cat the wrong way to hear these voices with these bodies moving, you know? Well, that's um, that's exactly the starting point from it, because um, the, the very first G.I. Joe miniseries, they didn't have a lot of the vehicles ready yet for, for, for sale, and so they're using very generic tanks and helicopters and things like that. And I had seen a movie on PBS, one of the few times PBS made a, a an original film, and it was called Vera the USO Girl, and uh, Sissy Spacek was in it. Okay. So it's an excellent film, but there was one major problem to me, the guy who was in the Army at the time, <laughs> and that was that to stretch their budget, they filmed it in Europe with a U.S. Army unit in Europe so that they basically filmed this Army unit on maneuvers and used them as background extras and whatnot, which Uh was perfectly all right, perfectly all right. Problem was, Vera the USO girl takes place in World War II. They were (laughs) filming contemporary U.S. troops with M16s, jungle fatigue, stuff like this, and it just, it does not fit. And so you have... This one character, the actor who's playing the lieutenant who's in charge, he's wearing an authentic World War II uniform. And then behind him, I mean, it, it looks like, you know, the, these Martian invaders are, are <laughs> you know, chasing behind him. And there was a lot of movies where I'd be watching a film or something, and i go, well, that doesn't work. It doesn't happen that way. It's not this sort of thing or that sort of thing. After I'd been in Korea for two years and I got, you know, because I was married and I, I enjoy Korean culture and I, I, I was absorbing it, I would see a movie that was set in Korea or during the Korean War. It's very difficult for me to enjoy either the movie or any episode of MASH because I'm looking at it and going, <laughs> no, not not close not even halfway close and much in the same way here in this episode yeah they're not using real they're, they're kind of like real joes yeah you kind of have gung-ho you kind he's got like a little bit of hair i think yeah I does it make say, sense i will say that this is the first uh, hollywood film where the actors they got to play them are less attractive <laughs> than the real guys <laughs> than the real guys because the joes are all as you guys know how i feel about the joes they're all very handsome men <laughs> and these actors are not that handsome i know and mm-hmm. At which point, Duke tackles Cobra Commander through a set-piece wall, yeah. which already, Duke is a sloppy actor. Like, yeah. I assume that the battle was staged in some way. Yeah. He instead decides to hit him from behind, put him through a wall, at which point, Cobra Commander rips off his, his uh, hood, throws it on the ground, and says, you'll be hearing from my lawyers. And he, he weird actor again to choose, because he's clearly not a young man. Oh, God. Oh, I, no. hope, I hope. I, I hope. I haven't seen the last episode, uh, but I'm hoping that when Cobra Commander does take off his mask, it's that dude. Because <laughs> that that, that's an unnerving moment where we're still not really sure what's going on. We see him take off the mask. We're like, wait, he's 
some Shakes because I picture him as like this super British Shakespearean actor uh, who they just brought it like Jeremy Irons in the Dungeons and Dragons no, movie. They got Alec Guinness to do the right. G.I. Yeah. Joe movie, yeah. and it's just I will not stand for such treatments <laughs> on the set of this. I was Othello. Yeah, well, that's that's where it came from. I mean, because we beautiful. Had, we had we had you hear these stories, you you see them in person and whatnot. You know, when I was working at Filmation, they were doing um, Space Command, Space Academy. Um, they were they they were doing some live action things, and we had Jonathan Harris at one point was the leader of Space Academy, and then he wanted money, and so they replaced him. <laughs> they replaced him with um, James Doohan and Scotty. Uh, Scotty and uh, James Doohan wanted to drink. <laughs> and so they replace him with another actor. I'm trying to remember who it was, the, the third actor. But anyway, so you would meet these guys, and you would talk to them, and you would realize they, they tried to be as supportive and as helpful to the younger actors as possible, and they tried to be professional and show up and, and do the job. But they also clearly regarded it as, you know, I'm slumming here. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm standing in front of a vacuform set you know, pretending I'm I'm a thousand years in the future and a billion miles in space, and that this this gibberish I'm speaking actually means something. You know? <laughs> and um, you you picked up on this, and you 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 had these weird moments. I mean, I'll, I'll branch off here for a little uh, Jason of Star Command story and come back. <laughs> we had we had Sid Haig playing Dragos, Ooh. and he was he was our bargain basement Darth Vader. Okay. <laughs> And they had him in this black and scarlet costume. I mean, it looked like an S&M costume. It had a big flowing <laughs> cape. And so he's, he's the gimp, basically. Yeah, basically. Yeah. He's got all this. But he's, you know, he's the, the helmet exposed much of his face, and he didn't wear the helmet at all times. So um, Sid, and I like him because, I mean, you know, I mean, we bump into each other at conventions, and, you know, it's like old home week and whatnot. Sid, and he'll agree with me, I'm sure, when I say this, um, John Dorman, who I mentioned in another episode, John Dorman said, Sid Haig's got a face that looks like it caught on fire and somebody stabbed it out with an ice pick. (laughs) He is one of the scariest looking guys in Hollywood, okay? And so he's playing Dragos. And we were working in a, uh, not in a real studio, we were working in a little um, industrial park. And we had these salesmen who would come by every day trying to sell whatever it was they were selling, boxes or insurance or something. I mean, to the, to the various businesses there. So you have to imagine the setup. The, the back half of the warehouse, not the back half, but the back three quarters of the warehouse is the set where we're shooting uh, Jason of Star Command. The front offices, uh, we have the receptionists. You've seen these little enclaves. You come in the front door, and there's like a little enclave, and there's a, a mm-hmm. desk, and you ha- they have to buzz you in to get into the main offices. We had a receptionist there, and then we had you know, the, art, the, the offices for the writers and the, uh, the production staff. And then, of course, everything in the back was the actual production itself. And they had the coffee machine up in front in the lobby. We had a salesman who came. Most of the salesmen come by, ask, and uh, thank you, but no. And they would, if they were pushy, they would leave a card. If not, they would just take the hint and go on. We had this one guy who was determined to, to meet Mr. Nadell who he figured out was the owner because Arthur had the parking space closest to the door, <laughs> Mr. Nadell. So he's coming in and says, I want to see Mr. Nadell. He says, well, Mr. Nadell is busy right now. He's, he's not available. 
I'll wait. Oh, well, I really don't think you should wait because he's going to be busy quite a long time. No, no, no. I'll wait. I want to see Mr. Nadell. He won't want to talk to me about what I have to sell. <laughs> I really don't think Mr. Nadell would. Uh, I want to see Mr. Nadell. I think he would know better than you what he wants for his business. And at that point, the door opened because they're br- taking a break in the shooting. And Sid Haig walks out in full <laughs> regalia. <laughs> Hi, Susan. Walks over. You know, he gets his coffee, walks out. <laughs> and the guy's looking at him and going, who is that? That was Mr. Nadell. <laughs> that is absolutely fantastic. Um, at this well, at this point in the episode, we have one of the most Hollywood conversations to ever happen because we don't have real Joes. We don't have real Cobra. We have generic looking tanks that uh-huh. don't quite fit what we're doing. And so we've got the production assistant uh, and then we, or the producer or whatever he's supposed to be right there and the director. And I love this director character. Oh, wait. Can I just say that, yes. uh, that, that the director, what did we learn? in the past when ever anyone is even slightly an asshole I was expecting the director was going to turn out to be the the Baroness Baroness. oh (laughs) jeez I was delighted that it wasn't but at first I was like oh is that the Baroness if it, had been, if it had been a little later in the season, it might have been. But, was, <laughs> but they just had my favorite conversation, which is, uh, uh, this is all phony. This is all trash. Well, yeah, it's a movie. What do you want? I want authenticity. But authenticity costs money. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's so true. Hollywood. I just, I giggled in my seat. The, the director is based on, um, on the real Don Steele. Oh. And uh, if you, he's... He was a, a Los Angeles DJ for a long time. He was on a ton of different radio stations, most famously at uh, K-Earth. But uh, he was also in a number of um, uh, low-budget cult movies, including Death Race 2000. One of my favorites. And Eating Raul. Okay. And, um, you know, and he just came across what I, I saw him, that whole persona and whatnot. It just that's the guy who would be the director. Yes. Of a movie like 100%. This. And so when I was writing the script, I very specifically said he is like, you know, the real Don Steele oh, in Death Race awesome. 2000. And they went all the way to imitating the costume. If you've seen Death Race, that's pretty much what Don Steele is wearing. <laughs> yep. You know? yep. I also got a lot of it. You could, awesome. With a modern take, I got a lot of Michael yeah. Bay out of that director yes. as well. Yeah. Uh, the the yeah. next, the that, second that coming. That makes sense, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so we cut over to... Uh, this is an interesting moment right here, and I'm sure you can shed some light on it, because Destro walks in on Cobra Commander eating his dinner uh, and having a glass of wine yeah. because Cobra Commander is classy he as is F. eating in style. Mm-hmm. He, has a, he has a little silver platter that his food is under. It's, it's, he, it, he, even when he's by himself, he's eating in style. I was surprised to see the wine, though, because usually in, in, in the animation world, they're yeah. usually very quick to say, don't make it look like alcohol. Well, it was grape juice, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were, uh, you know, going back to something I mentioned elsewhere about we had these restrictions yeah. on network animated shows. I mean, when we had a chance, when we were being recruited to do G.I. Joe and Transformers, the first episode everybody did was this to the wall, nuts, go crazy, blow everything up, pound the crap out of people <laughs> episode. And then it was like, Okay, I got that out of my system. Now what can I do? So Hold Down the Heavens was like the first G.I. Joe I wrote. And that was the one where it was like, yes, I'm going to do everything I couldn't do on Saturday morning. And then it was like, all right, now now how do I tell a story? You know, I think Lights, Camera, Cobra was about the time I, had, I was formally brought on as a story editor. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, that's, that was the first one that I wrote as a 
bona fide employee instead of just a freelancer pitching stories. But anyway, I had had these experiences watching movies where it didn't feel right and whatnot, and I'm, I'm trying to make sense of the G.I. Joe universe because, as, as we mentioned, there were so many things in it that did not make logical sense, but Correct. had to be assumed... <laughs> yeah. In order for the story to work. Because they don't talk about yeah. why Destro wears the mask, exactly. why Cobra Commander has the hood. Embrace the absurdity is yeah. the, the term I use. And I don't mean that in, in the sense of make fun of it, but just no. recognize, okay, you've got a guy that's wearing a silver mask all the time. <laughs> no problem. It's like, it's like a, um, a Santo movie, you know, the, the Mexican wrestler. Uh, yes. You got this, this guy who's <laughs> wearing a silver mask, a cape, <laughs> bare-chested, tights, and he's working in a nuclear lab. And right. you go, yeah, right. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Santo, he can do that. Of course he can. <laughs> or he's a detective yeah, doing a tale you know, exactly. on, you know. Yeah, you know. It's amazing. It's Yeah, you just accept it. So um, we're doing this scene, and, and we had had a discussion. Well, what does he look like under the mask? And Because this is back at the time when Star Wars is... I don't know if they had actually done their big reveal of who... Uh, this would have been a year or two before yeah. the uh, Return of the Jedi, which was 87. Yeah. This yeah. would have been 85, so a yeah. couple years before that. So they, they had not done that yet. And, you know, we had seen, you know, in serials and whatnot, they exposed the bad guy at the end. You, you, you typically either have, like, the Phantom of the Opera, where you mm-hmm. whip it off and there's a hideously deformed face, or... Uh, you know, you whip it off, and it's the last guy you expected. Right. You know, there's a there's a old serial called The Crimson Ghost, which is not a particularly good serial, but it absolutely has the best uh, fake out ending <laughs> because the the rotten, nasty, mean guy that you were expecting to be the Crimson Ghost all the way through. At the very end, no, it's the little meek guy that you kind of liked, and for yep. a serial, that was that was a pretty. Uh, that was a pretty clever bit of writing right there. But anyway, so we were discussing this, and and we asked Hasbro, and they said, well, we haven't decided yet, so don't show his face. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, okay, well, let's... Play with it a little yeah, bit. Play with it a little bit. So yeah. we shoot behind his back, and, you know, I thought, well, it'd be cool if Destro comes in and is like, oh, ah, no, I don't want to look at that. Please. <laughs> <laughs> and what that did, without knowing it, was that that gave us track, as yep. I had referred to earlier. It gave us a direction to go in when we were doing uh, the G.I. Joe movie, because mm-hmm. when we're trying to tie all this stuff in about who these characters were and whatnot. Well, wait a second. What if Cobra Commander was one of these guys and he had gotten mutated? And what what can we do that would be kind of gross that isn't your standard burn or something like that? And I said, ah, fill him full of eyes. Just give yep. him a face full of eyes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's that's. I had no idea what we were going to be doing at that point. Uh, if I had an idea that it was going to end up being, you know, uh, one of the key points in G.I. Joe the movie, I would have had a line of dialogue where he says, and there is no such place as Cobra La. (laughs) (laughs) See, there's a weird moment that happens because in the scene itself, it's clear that Destro has seen him without his hood before. And that he comes in not expecting to see him now. But he... It has a familiarity with Cobra Commander where he, f- it's it's just, he treats, he's a dick is basically what yeah. I'm getting at. Because he's like, dude, come on. We know your face is all is all fucked up, you know. Uh, uh, and, and 
I guess uh, if, if I had a friend or a coworker <laughs> and I knew that person kind of had a, a deformity of some kind. You would treat him like you treat Chan. I would treat him just like <laughs> Chan, which is I wouldn't bring it up. Yeah. And I would just kind of talk around it because it's really rude. And yeah. there's just a moment in there in the relationship where I'm like, either they're at a place where they're so cool with each other yeah. that Destro doesn't mind like bringing up, hey, your face is jacked. Or 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 they're at a, they're in a place where they're not at all cool. I don't know. Like it just it well, really yeah. was weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 origin of that, believe it or not, is in, is not in the dining room. It's in another room of the house. Um, I had known from reading because I mentioned we were a very literate group. We read a lot of stuff. I had known that uh, Lyndon Maines Johnson used to have meetings while he was sitting on the toilet. <laughs> And there would be there would be people <laughs> nice. in the presidential bathroom sitting there taking notes, and he's in there, you know, squatting it out, squatting it out, <laughs> and uh, you know, he's he's talking to people. And I thought, you know, if if you, I knew enough about real injuries and whatnot to know that there are some people who the way that they have to consume food is not pleasant to look at. Sure, mm-hmm. and. So I had no clear idea what was on the other side of that mask other than it was going to be something repulsive and it it could have been like a horrible facial injury and he's got to consume the food in a way that wouldn't be appetizing. Yeah, he makes a line for that. It it does take a strong stomach to watch me eat. Yes. Yeah. And nobody really likes him. They, They are following him because they're anticipating getting something from him at some point in the future and because it enables them uh you know destro is making a ton of money selling arms to him zamat and tomax they they're running the business end of things you have these characters who are getting something from him but nobody really likes him right and they so tolerate it, him. they tolerate him at best until he starts screwing up so badly that he starts threatening their their livelihood. And we even see yeah. that. We see that in the Pyramid of Darkness episodes yeah. where Tomax and Zamod are like, yeah, this whole time we had a plan to take over from you. Yeah. We're in charge now. Suck it, Cobra Commander. Which I, I think they should do every episode. <laughs> Someone start should try and take <laughs> yeah. over. But my question is, do you think that Cobra Commander has seen Destro without his mask on? That's a great they question. Don't, you don't even need to. The, the problem that I had with this uh, uh, scene... <laughs> Is that the dude who's telling him you've got a messed up face has a metal face? That's a great point. Why would you? But I'm uh, assuming underneath there he is devilishly handsome. I agree completely. See, I'm, I'm, I'm going along with the mass wrestler bit here because I, you know, I, I have a feeling that that Destro is just like he's really into that whole mystique, yes. and I mean the mm-hmm. the mask for him, it's to preserve his anonymity. But it is also, it's a way of expressing a personality about himself. He mm-hmm. does not need the mask. Mm-hmm. He chooses to wear the right. mask. Yeah, in some right. of the extended and universe, it's a family heirloom exactly. that's passed down through his like very and, rich And Baroness gets, gets turned on by it because it's a, a power symbol right. at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. You know? So I never thought, I mean, because we could have, we never did, but it would have been interesting if we had done an episode where, you know, they're trying to catch Destro and he gets away simply by taking the mask off and walking <laughs> oh, right past yeah. him, you know, and, and <laughs> mm-hmm. nobody, nobody thinks that guy is Destro. Yeah. That's cool. 
you know. Now I wish that would have happened. I know, I know. <laughs> well, they well, decide in the, in the moment, they decide they're going to call Zartan because yeah. they have some espionage stuff to do. And I'm like, of all the people in the Joe universe we've established on the show, he Zartan is the, is the last person you want to call <laughs> because as soon as anything like turns weird or he gets a question he's not ready for, which is literally any question you could ask him, he immediately loses his crap, blows his cover, and, and, and every single time we've seen him, he's terrible. So when I'm in my in my notes here, I'm just like, oh, you're going to call Zartan for an acting job? What is wrong with you at this point? I'm saying call well, the Baroness. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You've got to remember, I'm I'm we were dealing with Chris Lotta. A hundred percent. Okay, now now Chris, you know the late Chris Lotta. Um, Chris had a a stand up comedy routine where where he would would say openly he says I I am not a junkie I am a heroin enthusiast <laughs> you know and um, you know I I think I mentioned this um, I'll repeat if I'm repeating myself I apologize um, Flint Dilly you know was not married at the time and um, he gets a phone call like one or two in the morning from the Santa Monica Police Department oh dear say do you do you know Chris Lotta. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, <laughs> Says, do you want to come and bail him out? And Flint's going, do we need him tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, Chris, God bless him, he was, he was plagued by his own demons and sure. whatnot. And, and that is why, as outrageous as Cobra Commander is, there was something about Cobra Commander that was in deep down in the core of Chris Lotta. Mm-hmm. And you can imitate the voice. You cannot imitate the performance, yes. I don't believe. Mm-hmm. That's 100% you know. correct. But Gina makes a great point, though, is, you know, call the Baroness. <laughs> She's a better actress. She's been the She's master of She's way better at acting then I realize that it's 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 Zartan's only thing. <laughs> then why isn't he good at but it? But he needs to take some acting class. He needs to take some improv classes and some acting classes. Gotta get some Groundlings performances working under his uh, collar. I'll, I'll be honest with you. At this point, probably, I was I was thinking about Zartan and comparing him to some of the actors I had encountered. And go, oh, <laughs> you know, it's not, not, probably not that too far, far off. You know? He has this in this... The, sorry. Well, this is the crazy thing about... about a, about encountering actors in Hollywood. They they cover a very wide spectrum. And some yes. of them are the nicest, sweetest people you want to meet. They're very genuine. They're very caring. They're, they're, they're like really good neighbors that you would always like to meet and hang out with. And others come across as as um, like, like Sinatra. You know, they've got this charisma. They've got the magic going or something. And then there are some people that you're looking at them and how in the world do you expect to make a living in this business? <laughs> you know, I mean, really, seriously, what do you think you're going to contribute that anybody is going to want to pay yeah. to see? And that's Zartan. <laughs> but he's in the middle of robbing a, a, a vault of some kind. He, mm-hmm. He's literally done 99% of the job. He says there's a million dollars in here. Yeah. And, they, and then Cobra Commander says, I'll give you four. He goes, we're getting out of here. You're take already the, there. Just take, take the money the anyway. Take the million. Like, you're, he's so short-sighted. Like, like literally in two minutes, also, you could have, have both. We have established that sometime Cobra, sometimes Cobra Commander does not pay. Oh, yeah. we've, yes. We've gotten ends of episodes where they have to flee and he does not pay them. So just mm-hmm. take the million. And he openly says at the end of the episode, I'm not paying you for this. Right. <laughs> These guys never learn. No, no. I will say that I have met indeed people in Los Angeles who 
very much remind me of Zartan. And, oh my gosh. and I could definitely see them going like, oh, are they a better job? Okay, we'll just leave this money <laughs> on the ground and go on stage in the middle of your show. Oh, hold on, there's a movie that's calling. I gotta go. Yeah, no, it's, I, that has actually happened. Amazing. I mean, we, we have seen, not on the Transformer shows, but in other things, we've seen people just, oh, I got a better deal, and I'm, uh, oh, I got a chance to do a Broadway play. I'm gone. I, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you know, but uh, you, you committed to do this. Okay, guys, uh, this is Ray. Hi. And um, that's going to wrap it up for Seriously, part one. You're going to do it again. Stop. Yes, I got to do Stop it. Stop introducing yourself. <laughs> they don't know who I am. I'm very insecure, Robert Chan, <laughs> at 999 RPMs. Wow. Actually, that does feel pretty good. I will See? allow it. Okay, yeah. thank okay. you. <laughs> you're welcome, Ray Stacanus at Almighty Ray. Hey, that's me. <laughs> hey, who's Gina? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyways, guys, we're gonna we're gonna bring part two of this right here. How amazing is it so far? Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, you're gonna go ahead and uh, bring it back. Part two is gonna be next Friday. Uh, next Wednesday is going to be part two of the Know Your Joe Writer Buzz Dixon interview that we did. And guys, if you want to know more about Buzz Dixon, you can always go to buzzdixon.com or on Twitter. He's at Buzz Dixon Writer, uh, which is always cool. And he's got the most dangerous man in the world coming out for Kindle, and you should buy it. Yeah. And, it, and if we haven't talked a lot about it because this edit point is before we talked about it <laughs> you should just know that you should buy it anyway and come back next week and find out why that works right okay cool uh gina uh, who are you again i'm at gina ippy on twitter that's all i wanted to hear okay guys um till then good night Pope, the host of Breakfast with Brent Pope. You've seen me on some of your favorite TV shows saying things like, give it up, Jimmy, you gotta sink this putt to win. Or, I wouldn't jump up and down until we stabilize the hydraulics. On Breakfast with Brent Pope, I sit down with guests from the entertainment world, working actors, comedians, writers, stunt people, you get it, and we do it all over breakfast, or should I say, breakfast. Every week is a new episode of Breakfast, and here's what you get. Inside Hollywood info, like, how cool is it to act with Ed O'Neill? Spoiler alert, it's really cool. And what the heck is a gaffer? You get great breakfast wrecks and foodie debates like, when should you go hash browns and when do you go home fries? I know the answer to that. Trust me, my pancake posse, my bacon brigade. Listen up, because breakfast is the most delightful 30 minutes of your week. So dig in, it's breakfast time. Breakfast with Brent Pope, available at breakfast.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Thank you.